What is going on, everybody? Welcome to A Theology of Hustle. I'm your host, Curry Blanford, and today I'm talking to Alex and Meg. 14 years ago, Alex and Meg moved into the 53206 zip code, which is in inner city Milwaukee and also the poorest zip code in all of Wisconsin. And so we hear the story of what made them um, move from their normal sort of white everyday suburban uh, living into this zip code and how that has, has changed them over this time. We talk about a lot of racial injustice here, just how they've seen that on the ground where they live in community uh, with people experiencing these injustices. And we talk about uh, why some of this, the background of some of this, we talk about white flight. We talk about housing prices. We talk about uh, generational wealth. And there's a lot of like, just really good stuff in this episode from people who are living in this community every day. These are their neighbors. These are their friends. And uh, there's just a lot of wisdom here. There's a lot of good stuff here. And when we talk about vocation, we talk about calling. We tend to think of only a job like the I go to my job out here, which is my calling. But they're living their calling in their neighborhood right where they're at. And it's not necessarily tied to getting a paycheck, but is still very much their calling. And so we explore in this one a different sense of what calling calling is, what God has called uh, people to. And so I think there's a lot to that, and it'll probably expand your view of what God calls us to do. Uh, before we get to the interview, I just want to remind you to make sure you're following me on Instagram and Facebook at Theology of Hustle and on Twitter at Curry Blanford. You can also find me over on YouTube at Bootleg Bible College, which is just about educating you on Bible and theology. It's really short, you know, 10 minute videos just on the basics of Bible and theology. So uh, make sure you go check that out. And I hope you enjoy hearing from Alex and Meg. All right, y'all. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast and chatting with me. This is uh, super fun to chat. Yeah, thanks for having yeah, us. Thanks. Let's. Um, I know this is a big story and there's a lot to it, but let's just sort of maybe get the the flyover just to, of who y'all are a little bit and just introduce yourself to everybody. Yeah, sure. So I'm Alex and my I'm wife, Meg. wife Meg. Yeah. So we um, we've been living in the five three two zero six zip code of uh, uh, it's a, the inner city of Milwaukee. We've been living here for the last 14 years. Uh, 53206 is the poorest zip code in the state of Wisconsin. It's almost entirely all African-American. We're not African-American. Uh, median household income here is $24,000 a year, which uh, is is pretty tough to live off of. It ends up being about $12 an hour uh, for 40 hours a week worth of work kind of equates to about that much. So um, there's a, a lot that goes into making a, a zip code like this. These kind of areas don't just happen without um, some unintended unintended, um, actions and some intentional actions. So uh, we came here thinking that we were going to change the world and quickly realized that uh, the only thing that was really going to change was us. And uh, because of that, then uh, we're able to kind of shed some light on some of the injustices that uh, take place here and just kind of in and around uh, cities in general, uh, because it's, you know, there's a 53206 in every major city, uh, it seems like. So um, Milwaukee is one of or the most segregated cities in America. And so it's it's pretty common here to go to be able to drive, you know, 25 minutes away and have uh, a neighborhood that's entirely white and then come here and have it be entirely black, go to the south side, it's almost entirely Hispanic. Um, and because of that, um, you end up, um, because of being hyper-segregated, um, there's just a, a big lack of diversity. So there's a lack of racial diversity and there's a lack of socioeconomic diversity. Um, which is just another reason why being hyper segregated just it's not it's not good in the long run for 
society in general and for our city and, and really any other city. Yeah. Yeah. That's good stuff. Uh, there's so much there to talk about. I mean, you know, we spent a lot of time in Chicago. My wife's actually a social worker, which means she like, like just is drawn to, uh, you know, populations that are underserved, right? That's what social workers do. And, uh, so I would say Chicago in the same way is very segregated. We're from Texas and you think, Hey, you're in the South, the South's so segregated. There's such racism. And you come to these Midwestern cities and it's like, yeah, there's a lot of like really dangerous segregation, especially in Chicago, it gets into like gain territory. You know, it's like, you know, there's a street dividing these two, you know, the, the Latino section and the, and the African-American section, you know, uh, it's kind of crazy. So yeah. yeah, that's good stuff. So, okay. Let's jump into the why then behind, uh, moving into where you have and just what that journey's been like a little bit. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, like, like Alex said, you know, we started just to, you know, we thought, we could we could change the world. We could at least bring a little bit um, a little bit of diversity to this corner of Milwaukee, and it really quickly um, changed into, wow, our, our neighbors don't um, they can't move. They they don't get to pick where they live. Um, they're really put here, um, and because of that, that's one of the big reasons that we stay, and that's one of our whys. Is because you know Miss Maggie who lives next door. She you know she's a ninety one year old woman who. She doesn't have the opportunity to live anywhere else. Um, she doesn't have, you know, she doesn't have that the access to the resources, but also she doesn't feel comfortable um, in a lot of other places in the city. And that's, you know, that's something that we think that's just not right. Um, and that that was one of our big whys. Yeah. And we so, you know, 14 years ago, we were 23 and you know 25, respectively. And at that point, we were working at a college age ministry uh, for um, through kind of like a big mega church up here in the Milwaukee area. And uh, we would do these mission trips where we'd go um, down. This is right around the time of uh, Hurricane Katrina. So we went to uh, do hurricane recovery a couple of times. Um, a couple of trips down to Chicago, down to Nashville, inner city spaces over there. Uh, but the, the big one that we would do annually was down to Jackson, Mississippi. And... Um, when uh, one of the years uh, after going down there, uh, we were sitting um, at lunch. And so you would work all day, you'd gut houses, and then you would, uh, a woman would, would uh, you go back to the church and this woman would, would make food for everybody. So it's 50, 60, 70 volunteers that are come through you. We'd bring about 30. And so there'd be another group that would be there at the same time. And this woman, Mama Ward, would make lunch for everybody. And it was, I don't know if it was just because we were starving because we had worked like you know, and when you're in college, you're not you're not gutting houses. You're reading books or you know, I don't know, playing video games or whatever you do when you're in college. And so, you know, this was real. This was real physical work that we were doing. And um, so we were starving every day. And so she would she would make lunch. And sometimes they'd have guest speakers come. And, and one of the guest speakers that came was uh, the wife of a pastor that worked um, in one of their partner churches. And she kind of told us a story about. Um, about um, about their life, and they lived in a similar area that we do now. And so they were a white couple, an older white couple, pretty affluent. You could just kind of tell by the way that they carried themselves and how they were dressed, and um, they kind of interact the way that they interacted with other people. And um, so she kind of got going on this story, and, and you could tell, and she's probably told this story multiple times. But before she started it, um, and, and and partway through, she she stopped and said, you know, I. Uh, I don't normally I don't normally say this to the groups, but I have something I want to tell you. And I think this was a, this is one of the things we had already at that point been kind of thinking like, well, we want to do something 
special with our lives. Like you get one life. And I don't know if it was just like, you know, going to Willow Creek Church at that point in, in my life. You know, I think that maybe had been um, one of the big pushes uh, just in churches and youth groups at that point was, you know, you got a bunch of 18, 19, 20 year old kids like you want you want to instill in them that their life matters and you want to instill with them, instill in them that um, the choices that they make matter. And there are consequences, both good and bad to your life decisions. And so I think we both had it pretty ingrained uh, me through those experiences and you through going on mission trips with your with your mom and mm-hmm. your family um, and a couple of a couple of uh, trips um, through the our uh, college age ministry in general. Uh, really decided, okay, we like, yeah, we, we want to try to do something special. So we threw out the idea and even kind of going down to Jackson at that point, had, had thrown around or tossed around the idea of maybe trying to live in, in the uh, inner city of Milwaukee. Um, but um, after this, after this woman started um, kind of wrapping up the, you know, her, the traditional part of her speech, she said, yeah, I don't normally, I don't normally mention this. And she started talking about a time where she was attacked in her house. And um, you, know, you could tell it was, still mildly fresh the way that she was speaking about it. And she, she went on to say not a ton of specifics, but just that, you know, she had been attacked in her house and uh, when her husband was away and through that, you know, it wasn't the story about being attacked. It was more like the, the emotion and the reaction after the fact. And she went on to tell us that, you know, she, she and her husband talked a lot about, well, do we move? Do we stay? How do we, uh, what, what do we do now? You know, we we're, we're vulnerable in a place that's very different than where we were from. We've uh, we very easily have the financial resources to be able to pick up and move. And um, you know, she said that, you know, they, they thought about it a lot. Her husband was very supportive. You know, if you want to move, we can move. And uh, she eventually said, you know, no, I, I think we should stay. And I think we should stay because what well, Meg was just saying that, um, that, that my, her, you know, I'm using her words, my neighbors don't have the capacity or the ability to move. And mm. I know that that is very true here because I can, we, we live on a busy street and our front yard is basically the highway. So it goes grass, uh, street, grass, highway. And you kind of, you go down the road. So every day when I leave the house, I go for a run and I run down to the Bucks stadium where the Bucks play. And I can count as I go down six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 houses where I know the people have lived there before the highway was put in Hmm. the highway being put in, um, had a, a drastically damaging effect on um, the financial capacity of the housing stock in the area to go up in value and essentially kind of locked people in to to staying there. So Miss Maggie, you know, she lived there for over 60 years. That was, that was, she was there before the highway was put in. and, And then now, I was there afterwards. And, and yeah, I mean, there was no, there was no financial capacity to move at that point. Um, you know, you and I can go to a, a suburb we can, we can spend $200,000 on a house and we can reasonably predict that 20, 30, 40 years from now, it's probably going to be double in value. And here, um, housing, housing, housing prices haven't gone up. Uh, we own five houses in the neighborhood and the most we've paid for one is ours. We paid 75 for ours and we overpaid back in 2006. The other ones we paid 14, 15, 30, and 35,000. So, wow. you know, and those are, those are the exact, those are the prices that they almost, um, they're only a little bit higher than what was paid for the home, you know, back in the 60s. Yeah. And so, you know, the biggest, the biggest asset that most people have is their house and that, you know, hasn't depreciated. And that's, and, you know, just even saying that, that's one of the, of the, you know, snapshots of, of, of why somebody could be stuck you know, in a place like this or, or one of the injustices that take place like pretty regularly 
you know, and, yeah. and without without the majority of people even like realizing that these things are going on. So, you know, over the course of the last 14 years, you start to learn some of these things and you start to see um, really what, what are the consequences of something like that? And, and generationally, how, how does that affect, you know, her specifically our neighbor, Miss Maggie, how does that affect her, her kids and her grandkids and her great grandkids? Because we know all of them and we, we can right. see how, the progression over time, uh, that growth financially hasn't taken place. That generational wealth hasn't been able to be obtained. Um, and there's some serious, there's some real serious consequences to that. So, yeah. Yeah. That's the main way uh, white people have grown generational wealth over these years. Like, you know, over the last 400 years is, is uh, uh, home ownership and that being passed down and it builds wealth and, you know, it's passed on. And I, I didn't realize that houses stayed in that, like, price range that is like mind-boggling um wow and, and so. yeah and and one of the houses we own we own um it was charlie's house and charlie took immaculate care of his house he like the woodwork in his house is impeccable and you know mm -hmm. we always say that if that house was you know two miles towards the lake it, it would be worth you know two and a half three hundred thousand yeah and and it's just it is it's so unfortunate um that you know that he's lived there he's lived there since um what since 19, 1940 yep. and you know his family owned the house and it's just you know it's it's it just makes you so mad to know that Charlie didn't get what he deserved and yeah. he didn't um you know he didn't get to see his house you know mm. worth two hundred thousand dollars just because of where he lives and you know that being in the neighborhood that you know has more African Americans than not yeah Charlie right. yeah. Charlie was born in the house. And then stayed, you know, stayed basically there his entire life until he passed away um, a couple months back. And um, he was the type of guy that cared so much about the the physical appearance of his yard that I would, when I would leave for work, I would drive past his house and I would see him out there with like a pair of like big kitchen shears cutting the grass and like edging edging along the sidewalk, edging along the walkway up to his up to his front door. And I'm um, going into his house now. Um, so, you know, we've, we've known him, you know, for 14 years or, you know, 13 years at that point, probably. And, um, and so because, because of that, you know, we were able to develop a relationship. And then when it was time to move on, his family was going to move on from the house. You know, they contacted us and said, well, would you like to buy it? And of course, like we want to, we want to maintain his legacy and try to do something special with the space. But I love going in there because there are things that um, only like the most um, careful and most, um, courteous homeowner would do when they go to like do a, like a renovation. So, and if you've ever done any kind of home renovation work, like there are certain, there's a level that is acceptable and there's a level that is beyond acceptable and everything he did was beyond acceptable. I mean, love the house. And so we're, we're working on renovating it and potentially turning it into a rental property. But I, frankly, I'm a little afraid to rent it because I just think it's so perfect. I don't want anything bad to happen to it. So we may yeah. end up, we may end up just, um, doing a full renovation on uh, needs uh, some electrical work and some plumbing work. So we may end up doing that and then um, selling it, but um, yeah, a little more home ownership in the area. Yeah. My, the homeowner before me was the opposite where he did everything the worst possible sure. way. Yeah, yeah. That's so how I get to two fix it yeah. twice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. That's, that's, uh, that's pretty staggering. And it just, yeah. I mean, I'm no, I know we're going to like circle back to this theme again and again in this interview, but you know, uh, the federal government, like withholding loans to African-Americans during, uh, Jim Crow and beyond, 
like speaks exactly to this very problem. Like that's, that's what led them to not have the ability to build generational wealth and the, the government and those entities doing that knew what they were doing when they withheld those uh, loans from, from them. So um, yeah, that's a, that's a great example. And I appreciate y'all highlighting, highlighting that. Uh, I want to push just a little bit. I want to dig down to the next level though, real quick, because you said, you know, your neighbors don't have the opportunity to leave. Yeah. So, I mean, you do. So, so what, like, let's dig down to the next level. Like, what is that that compels you to not? Well, I, I think for me, it's really easy. So I, I work out of my home. And so a lot of times, you know, I'll go for a walk and I love my neighbors. I mean, they're, they're great. I, we have this community garden that I, I meet the neatest, you know, the, just the coolest people there. Um, So I, I really think it's just being able to, you know, have these enriching you know, relationships with people that, that are, are very different than me that have just such different life stories that, um, you know, that can, that can just show me, you know, small pieces of their life. And I just think it's fascinating. Um, yeah. you know, I, I think it's just, it's been, it's been so neat to be here for 14 years. Cause like Alex said, we've, you know, we've seen a lot of the, a lot of people here that have grown up, you know, that have had kids that the kids now have kids and, you know, just being able to be in people's lives and, be able, you know, just be able to learn from them has been, has been incredible. Um, I think, I think it's just been, it's been awesome. And I think for me, it's while this area is, is actually quite homogeneous, it's almost entirely black and it's almost entirely poor. For me, it's diversity. It's different than, and I, I, I tend to think that diversity, um, well, I think it's a good thing. I think, I think that the more diverse a space is racially and the more diverse it is socioeconomically, I think that then um, that just leads to a fuller and richer life because you are around people mm -hmm. that are different than you and have different uh, viewpoints in life and have just have different, um, they just view life differently. And, and that's awesome. And I love that. And then um, I think that one of the things, I don't even know if we've mentioned this, but uh, one of the things that um, we were always a little worried about was what was going to happen when uh, our kids grew up. So we've got a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old and uh, when I think about right now, how much energy and how much excitement there is on trying to create a more racially reconciled America, I think that having our kids be in a diverse space, uh, really, I don't know if it puts them at an advantage or I don't know what the advantage would be, but I just, again, I think that they are going to have a more richer and fuller life because of that level of diversity it's really easy to talk about things like redlining or white privilege or uh, really just any 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 conversation about race in general because you can walk down the street and you can you can point and you can say well well here's here's an injustice here or here's here's a place that well there could be some work done on, on making things um, making things more fair and appropriate or um, you know you can even have some hard conversations like well why why are there balloons and stuffed animals saran wrap to the tree right there. What does that mean? Right. And um, it gives you an opportunity to actually talk about those things where, you know, where I was from, uh, I loved growing up there. I think it's awesome. I think anybody should, could, should move to Lake of the Hills. It's great, <laughs> but um, it doesn't, you, you don't have those similar types of life experiences. And, and we have the ability to, um, to, to give them those experiences when necessary, shelter them when necessary. And so it's, it's, it gives us the ability to be flexible with that. And then again, like be able to provide them with a childhood where they are experiencing uh, uh, as much of the fullness of life as possible 
because they're they are inherently um, interacting with it on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I totally agree. We have a ten year old and an eight year old, and I I very much see how that those sorts of things come in. We live in a in a more diverse place for the you know western suburbs, which are very very white. You know, uh, but you know our kids go to school with people of of all all different ethnicities, and so. Uh, there are a lot of awesome conversations you can have cause it is, it's, it's right in their face. There's no, like when you grow up around all white people, like how are you going to have a conversation about white privilege? Right. These people have never seen anything, but like what they're living in, you know, they've never experienced anything outside of their culture. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's cool. I think it's good stuff. Um, I love the refrain though, that you keep bringing up, which is, we went into this sort of thinking we were going to save the world, which I like really resonate with that energy in my twenties. Uh, but we ended up changing, you know, we were the ones who ended up changing. Can you speak to just some of the ways that you have seen that maybe the, and maybe the way that the dream has died of like saving the world, or you've realized that that wasn't actually supposed to be the dream all along and the ways in which you've been changed. Does that all make sense? Yeah, I, I think for me, it was really just it was I mean, I feel like I'm just saying the same thing over and over again, but it was just getting to know people and, and just hearing their stories. But I think it was more so just hearing, you know, those, those injustices and, you know, that it's not that people were complaining. It's not that, you know, Charlie and his wife were complaining. They were showing me their pear tree in the backyard. They were, you know, he was showing me, right. you know, his, his beautiful tomatoes um, and his peony, you know, plant, you know, like and. And it was like by realizing that you're not going to get anything back from all of this beautiful stuff that you have created and you have have cultivated, um, you know, it it just yeah, it just it just got to me, and I thought this just isn't fair. This is just a complete injustice. Um, and so it's just seeing those injustices, and quite honestly, it's it's seeing those injustices, you know, all the time. I mean, it's it's going down the street, and you know, we we have another neighbor down the street, and you know, she's talking she was telling me about how um you know she's like oh yeah there's garbage everywhere and she's like before the highway before the highway was put in there wasn't garbage you know and she's and that she's, was 60 years ago exactly yeah. you know yeah. she remembers she remembers yeah. the time that you know where the neighborhood was on kind of on the upswing and you know she had to she had to go through you know she had to go through watching you know white people move out of her neighborhood and um you know more crime come in and that's just that just you know this just isn't right and so seeing all those small injustices um i think just you know just from my white privilege made me be like wow this is this is a complete injustice this is not fair um and and so i think that's you know that's why we try to make our neighborhood a little bit better for you know for the charlies and the miss maggies um because they deserve better and that's it's not fair that they you know don't have a nice neighborhood um it's I, I I feel somewhat responsible at you know being a white person that you know the neighborhood you know went you know went downhill because of white flight and um, so you know I think a little bit you know the little bits we can do to to try to you know make the houses look a little bit more presentable is is kind of giving back. Yeah, and I know for me I was the again when you're you know 23 you make this declaration well I'm 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 going to go do this or we are going to go do this. And you go, you go and you move and you bring all your stuff into a house and the house is a mess and um, it needs just a, a ridiculous amount of work. But then any time that we would bring up anything having to do with living in the inner city, uh, we would kind of, well, I mean, I don't even know that we would get a response. It was almost always like blank stares. Mm -hmm. 
Like, I don't understand, <laughs> you know, nobody understood what, what the point of it was. Nobody understood right. why you would want to do that. Not to go into specifics, but you know, you have like family members that like really question, like, what are you doing? Why are you, why, why would you even ever consider doing that? And um, I know at some point I just kind of resigned myself to the fact that, well, whatever, whatever change was actually going to happen, it was only going to be on the scale of whatever we could physically do in our, in our space. And so it was, you know, start looking at, well, how do you, how could you provide adequate housing to a family at a reasonable price? And what would that, what would that take if you were to own a couple of rental properties and do that? And um, so it was very much more so on just like meeting like people's basic needs or like providing uh, for a, a higher quality of life for a very small group of people, which actually probably is like the you're going to go change the world mindset. Like it's just on a very small scale, yeah. which is probably actually how you would do that. And then you could, I guess, in theory, scale it up. Um, and so honestly, uh, we, I think, you know, I don't know what we got, like 20 podcast episodes or something. But before we even got like before that, we probably weren't even mentioning this to any other person, because frankly, when you go 12, 13, 14 years without anybody noticing or caring or even thinking what you're doing is intelligent in any way, <laughs> um, you, you tend to get a little a little confused about what your purpose and what your what your plan was outside of whatever you make for it, in, you know, within those sets of parameters that um, are kind of going on in your head. So I don't I don't know what any young person thinks that they're going to be doing that is going to be so revolutionary that the world is going to change or care. Uh, but we definitely didn't do it. Uh, <laughs> but at the, at the same time, at the same time, you know, you when when you do decide, OK, well, we are there have been many times, I don't know, a dozen, 15, 20 where we had to say, OK, well, are we going to stay here? Like, is it financially right. even like intelligent to stay here? So when when we renovated our kitchen, we put a kitchen in that was worth more than two of the houses that we've purchased combined in a property that's worth like about what the kitchen renovation cost. So you, you, you make some really stupid financial decisions um, intelligently, though, and, and thoughtfully uh, based on that. But, yeah, there's been plenty of times where we thought, OK, are, are we are we staying or are we going? And every single time it came back to, well, we're better off for being here. We think our kids are going to be better off for being here. Um, I don't know that it's always like better for our marriage because it's more stressful sure. and like yeah. challenging. Mm -hmm. But at this point now, you know. 14 years down the road, it, it forces you to communicate a lot more and it forces you to be a lot more intentional. And it makes me have to make sure that I'm being respectful of Meg um, in just the way that I'm interacting with neighbors and our tenants and um, people at the community garden. And um, makes it makes uh, it makes their, it requires a lot more communication, which I don't think is, is a bad thing. I think it's a good thing in a marriage. So, yeah, we, de I mean, we definitely have, you know, there's the we were just talking about the car alarm that was going off at, at four in the morning or something that somebody was having a fight and the car alarm was going and yeah. Alex went out and he just took like, I took the fuse out for the horn. <laughs> so, you know, you know, stuff like that does yeah. not happen. Um, did not happen where I was growing up. Um, you know, and so there is, you know, stuff like that, or there's, you know, people fighting and you, you are, you do get worried. You know, I, there's been times when kids, we need to go inside right now. We can't be outside anymore. Um, and, to be honest, it's, it's a great lesson. Um, you know, these people are fighting and we don't know what they're going to do. And we, we don't hang around with people like that. We go inside and we don't, we don't judge them. We don't care what, you know, we're, we're just going to go inside and we're going to, 
uh, do what we're going to do because it's safe inside. Um, but it's definitely, you know, there definitely are, you know, those types of situations. But like Alex said, we've never had a situation where, um, where we really have thought, um, thought we should move. It's mainly just been, do we want to keep investing um, in the neighborhood? Right. And the answer, you know, has kind of resoundingly been yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a decision you have to make. Uh, yeah. To, yeah. Stay and, and pursue this or, you know, I'm sure go wherever you would want to and, uh, and, and find something else. Right. So yeah, there is a little, there's an added level of, of, of decision-making that goes on there. Yeah. That's good. I do. I I've listened to the podcast. I've listened to a few episodes. I really enjoy it nice. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's uh, it sounds good. First of all, which I'm a big nerd about sound. So. Okay. My brother <laughs> um, hooked us up with all the equipment. So perfect. perfect. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> so, uh, and, and just talking about your journey and stuff, I think that's, I think that's an important, uh, like storytelling I think is really important. So, uh, I appreciate the podcast. I'll link that, uh, in the show notes so everybody can find that themselves. We were, we, when we were trying to think of like, so there's always like been this conversation of like, well, what do we do? Like we have, there's, there's been some knowledge that we've gotten imparted to us by being here for such a long time. Right, and what do you right. do with that? What do you, mm -hmm. what do you actually do with it? And, you know, again, as like growing together more as a couple and spending more time just sitting around and talking, it actually became pretty natural to say, well, could we just grab a couple of microphones and just record our conversation? Because right. I was finding that we would have um, like these like really in-depth, awesome conversations about life and justice and race and equity and what's fair and not fair. And, how did we how did we get to the places where we're at now um, individually as a city as a society and all those kind of conversations and so yeah we just decided one day we were up in michigan where my brother lives and said hey can we borrow all the podcast stuff and sure enough yeah he said go for it mm -hmm. and um and so yeah i mean it really it's it's just a just a, a conversation um but I mean, I, I learned a ton from her and I hope, you know, she learned something from me yeah. as we're kind of talking through stuff, but. Well, and, and I think something that's just, it, it's, it's just extremely satisfying to be able to talk on the podcast about people like Miss Maggie, about right. people like Charlie, about people that have experienced these injustice, injustices and, you know, other, other people can resonate with their lives. And, and I think, you know, if, if we're able to spotlight a few of the people in our neighborhood that have experienced, yeah. you know, these, these drastic injustices, then that's awesome. Um, another really neat thing is that there's a lot of entrepreneurs in our neighborhood. And so oh, yeah. something that we showcase on our website uh, is that you can actually buy things from people in the neighborhood. And that's been something that's just really exciting for me cool. um, yeah. that, you know, the the hat Alex is wearing right now is, is a 53206 hat. And so, you know, one of the guys uh, sells that around the corner. And so, you know, I think that's just a, a cool opportunity to, you know, there's just not, there's not a lot of revenue coming into the inner city. And so if, you know, if, if we can provide, you know, one more outlet for people to be able to give people, you know, some money for some of the awesome things they're creating, um, it's just kind of a win-win. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's, that's super cool. And, and most, uh, you know, and to have a venue like that, like a website, even like e-commerce is like like not that hard to set up, but it's very complicated if you don't know what you're doing. Yes, you exactly. Um, it's it's yeah, overwhelming, so, but yeah, for yeah. you know, for for a, you know, somebody like me, I can set that up very right. easily. <laughs> that doesn't take long. Yes, I totally. And 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 it, to be, I mean, to be honest, it's funny because most of the time I'm like, why don't I just build you a website? You know, then you you can you know you can add as many products as you want. Then I don't I don't have to do it myself. I don't have to do it right. Yes, 
I do similar things. I design WordPress and uh, I end up doing too many sites for people, but you know, yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, I get it. I totally get it. Everybody needs a website. So, um, okay. I don't, I, I really want to dig down into the, like why behind the inner city, inner city and the why behind like poverty. Can we start, you mentioned white flight and I don't know that everybody sort of even understands that concept or how that went down in major cities like Milwaukee and Chicago. Can you talk through some of that? Yeah. So, okay. So white flight basically, um, and I can give you just kind of the example of this neighborhood. So this neighborhood was a German neighborhood. Our house was built in 1905, uh, from 1905 until about 1950, 1955. This was a predominantly white neighborhood. If you go up the street, there's a cemetery and you, you walk up this up to the cemetery where we take the dog every once in a while. And all the names on the gravestones are German last names. Um, her last, her maiden name is Essenmacher. And so, you know, she's got some German heritage. So, you know, lots of names like that. And at some point, uh, it became much more um, obtainable for an African-American family to go and purchase a house. Uh, certain spaces around Milwaukee, it was actually illegal for an African-American to buy a property. In fact, uh, my sister and her husband live in an all-Black neighborhood just up the street uh, by like the the most, uh, like one of the highest functioning high schools in the state or the highest um, academically, you know, uh, a very good high school <laughs> up to, in the state, right? Yeah. Probably should know that as a, yeah. as a school administrator, <laughs> whatever. Um, but up the street, so they, they live in a space too and, and you couldn't buy a house there. You couldn't buy a house if you were an African. Like legal, like if you were African-American, you legally were not allowed to purchase a home even if you had the money. Correct, yep. yep. Wow. And so, and that, that, that neighborhood, the housing stock there is, is a much higher quality than it is even here. And so uh, a lot of land and stone houses, brick houses, houses that still look phenomenal, you know, even, you know, 30, 40, uh, 50 years after that time. So, uh, but, you know, in the, in the fifties and the sixties, um, this neighborhood um, really went through a, a shift. And so it, it was it was fine and totally legal and, and appropriate and great for a black family to buy a property on the on the street. Uh, but um, that was a time even more so than today where racism is, is still exists. And and I would imagine that back at that point, you know, people were a little more forthcoming with their racist tendencies. Right. And and because of that decided, well, you know, if I have a couple of black people that move into my neighborhood, well, now all, all of a sudden it's a bad neighborhood. It's a neighborhood that I don't want to be in anymore. And so that means that, you know, you have this new development called a subdivision or a, or a suburb that's, you know, 10 or 15 miles west of here. And that's that's more appealing. And at that point, then, if you've had a couple generations of gener generational wealth being built, you know, you do have the money to go do that. Some of the subdivisions were uh, redlined, uh, which meant uh, that was uh, um, in the city too. But uh, like where, again, like if you were a black individual or a family, you weren't allowed to go purchase a property there. Um, this was in the 50s and 60s? Yeah. And, and you know, we, we are not um, social science experts. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. We're, right. we're very much more so we know what it's like to live here. Yeah, um, totally. But uh, and so I, I apologize if you have any listeners that are immediately saying that my years are off by five. Because I, I, even, even if the, like the mid century right there, that like that could even be a thing. It's just like mind boggling where yeah. it was illegal or strongly discouraged by a policy for a black individual to buy a house in certain spaces. And because of that, those spaces became very white or stayed right. very white. And the spaces that were becoming darker were neighborhoods like ours. 
And then um, at some point back in the early 1960s, the highway was put in. Uh, and the highway was put in in an all-black neighborhood. In fact, one of, one of my friends down the street, I uh, was talking to him uh, over the summer, and he was like telling me the story of when the highway was put in. In the early 1960s, uh, he was drafted to go to Vietnam or Korea, whatever war was going on at the time. And he, uh, he went to go off, off to serve the country, and he came back, and in his front yard, he lives on the same street as me, where the front yard is basically the highway. Instead of his front yard, there was a hole in the ground. And instead of his neighborhood, there was a giant ditch that ran as far as he could see down towards downtown and as far as he could see up the up towards uh, to, towards the north there. And so all, all of that, all of the, the properties, you know, were, were torn down. The highway was put in. Having a highway is great, but there, there are some long lasting effects, which we kind of talked about at the beginning here. But that's that's how a neighborhood like this starts. And then when you have a perpetuation of this idea that it's bad or unsafe or that we should be afraid of it, um, it makes it easy for someone to that has no experience with a, a place like this to judge it or to justify not even wanting to go there. And so, right. there, you know, we we did a couple of podcast episodes, a, a series called like, Aren't You Afraid of Getting Shot? Because that was that was a comment that we would get early on. You know, aren't you aren't you afraid of like something really terrible happening to you? And, you know, I, I haven't gotten shot yet. And Meg hasn't gotten shot. It hasn't even been close. I mean, there's, we've had zero close calls of anything like that. And in fact, if we go to some of the more trendier areas, and that is like where I've had friends that have had, uh, you know, violent crimes happen to them, and it had nothing to do with with being an all black neighborhood. Um, so because of that, and, and a bunch of other like smaller policies, uh, it it stays this way, and it just perpetuates. And um, I mean, we, we put a, so let me just kind of give a little story here. So when, when you don't have people investing financially into a neighborhood, well, then the property values aren't going to increase. Uh, the, like the average property value for our zip code is like $32,000. Uh, property values don't go up. And because of that, people aren't going to invest in it. You're going to get landlords that are going to buy the properties cheap. They're going to charge market rent and they're going to basically be disposable. So just like a, a disposable house, they're going to let it go to the crapper or whatever. And um, it, it's just gonna And then they're going to give it up to the city and then the city is going to tear it down and then it's going to be a vacant lot. And then people are going to dump their stuff on the vacant lot. Um, the people that still live here, again, they haven't had that ability to, to um, generationally grow wealth through the appreciation of their house. Um, and also when there's no investment, I mean, like things naturally like just get run down over time. And right. so the, the garage that we put in, we put in a three car garage right after our son was born. Um, about six or seven years ago. And that is the only new structure that I have seen put up like, like at all yeah. in, the, in wow. blocks and blocks and blocks and blocks mm -hmm. and blocks. And not that that means that we did anything special, but you know, uh, uh, putting a garage in, in two miles wet, two miles west of here, that's normal. People do that all the time. They tear down old buildings and they put up new buildings, but that, that type of investment just doesn't happen here. Mm. You may get a habitat house every once in a while, you know, habitat for humanity. But beyond that, you know, homeowners aren't investing because it makes no financial sense to put in a $20,000 garage when, you know, again, your house is worth 30,000. Yeah. You're just yeah. not going to do that. And, and, you know, somebody that's coming from a limited set of means certainly isn't going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's still mind boggling to me that you can buy a house in downtown Milwaukee for $35,000. Like yeah. that is insane. Yeah. Literally um, every morning I, leave out my front door and I turn south and I run to the Pfizer forum where the bucks play and I run back and it's two miles. Wow. Makes no it's sense. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Um, 
That's good stuff. Uh, thanks for thanks for delving into that. I I know you know. I mean, we all know our our country. In addition to a pandemic, is in racial upheaval. Still, you know. I mean, Ahmad Arbery feels like about sixteen years ago now. You know, it's just like feels like forever. But uh, I know your community is experiencing those things even even more than than most. You know. Um, so can you talk just a little bit about how? sort of George Floyd. And I cannot remember the guy in Wisconsin that, that got shot. Like, yeah. Jacob Blake, Jacob Blake, yep. uh, how that has sort of like affected the people in, in your community. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think it's really just kind of, um, made people come together more. Um, mm. like, like we've been talking about, there's a community garden and, um, you know, I was just there the other day and they were, they were giving out free t-shirts that had, yeah. um, it was this really cool t-shirt with like the fist um, with like all the people's names on it um, with black lives matter. And so, you know, it's just, people are coming together more. I think, um, you know, some, something that I think we try to do is we just, you know, we try to be there for our neighbors, um, like lending an ear, um, you know, but I think it's, it's hard seeing the, like the, the verdict the other day and um, hearing about hearing about that and, being able to to see our neighbors and know that they're struggling with that. And it's, it's not something that as a white person that really, you know, has to affect us. And, right. you know, it's, it's those types of things that I think it's just more injustices that, that we're seeing that as a white person, we, we, we don't have to care about this. We don't have to, we can turn our eye and we don't have to be affected. Um, and I think it's because of that, you know, we really are trying to, you know, tell our kids about these things that are happening um, and, you know, and just go and just try to listen. Um, you know, our, like I said, we go to the community garden and really we just try to listen. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's, I think it's, it's helpful for us to be able to hear people's stories, but it's, it's really hard. Um, it's, it's really hard to see, you know, just, just to see all of these things. Um, and yeah. And, you know, it's, it's great that people are caring, but it's, just has to be so hard um, to, you know, to watch that. And, you know, as a white person, I think the more we recognize our white privilege, um, the more we can just, um, you know, just try to, you know, combat it. Yeah. I was just thinking about the neighbor on the other side. Um, so had this big, long conversation with this guy, he ended up giving us a black lives matter, um, like giant banner. And we had to hang it up and I was talking to the neighbor and she said, Oh yeah, black lives matter. And then she said, well, all lives matter. And she's, I don't know. She's probably like 70, 70 year old black lady. And, um, and I, and I, you know, I said to her, well, yeah, but it would be nice if like, like people recognize that and it, I, and we didn't have to have a banner for it. And she said, yeah, that would actually be kind of nice. <laughs> so I, I think it, I think it just depends. I, I think if you've, if you're 70 and you've had 70 years of things being skewed in one direction, that's one of the things that we're, that's that's one of the things that we're kind of we've been talking about a lot lately is, you know, even if it's skewed like one percent in one direction and you you take that. And, you know, I was a math teacher for a long time. And you start you start you, you take that to an exponential level, you know, one percent over and over and over and over and over again in a bunch of different facets of your life is going to make things just a lot harder. And so police brutality is terrible. Police brutality is a terrible thing. It shouldn't it shouldn't be the way that it is. There should be a bunch of reform around it. But there are also a ton of other um, equally terrible things that affect the masses um, at a much higher rate 
but like they don't on the surface, they don't appear to be nearly as bad. Like for example, Milwaukee public schools, a third of the kids, a third of the black kids don't graduate high school. And so mm. what happens? What happens when a third of them don't? I mean, you know, for me, I, I don't even know what it would have been like to not graduate high school. I don't, it wasn't even an option. I, I didn't even, right. I, I don't, I couldn't tell you the number of times that I tried and I couldn't in school. And I couldn't tell you the, the, the times I ever thought, oh, I'm not going to make this. I'm not going to be able to make this work. And there's, you know, a third. So there's like 6,000 black kids that go to Milwaukee public schools and like 2,000 of them aren't, aren't going to make it. Yeah. And, but they're still, they're still alive. What's can you compare that to the white population and their average graduation? So rate? I, I don't remember what it is from Milwaukee public schools, but in Wisconsin, it's 93% if you're white and then it's 76% if you're black. So still like that's almost a quarter. And, <laughs> and that's, yeah. that's not, that's not good. Yeah. And what, what happens a lot of times, at least for me, and I'm really only talking from my personal experience because until I really sat and thought about that, um, I wouldn't have like connected a bunch of these dots, but, um, my initial thought of somewhat coming from a place where graduating high school is so easy, like I would have no connection to, well, it actually is like hard here. And why is it hard? And what would it, what would have to have happened in my life for that to be difficult for me? Like how many, how many things would have had to go wrong for you or for me, you know, in, in order to get to the point where like I'm failing classes and I'm, and, and I know from personal experience, it's really like we have systems in our school district that make it actually pretty easy to graduate. Like there are systems right. and programs and there's credit recovery and there's GED option two that you can get a high school diploma. Um, if you're at all engaged with education, um, you can do it. And I know my first response would be to judge somebody that wasn't able to do it. And I have to really check that a lot of times because um I would get into that. I could, I would, or could get into the habit of thinking less of somebody that didn't do that. Mm-hmm. When honestly, I, I can't even fathom what would have had to have occurred in my life in order to make it that much harder for me. And, and those types of things. I mean, if the last, the episode we posted today, um, it's about four kids that died young that were from our neighborhood. And uh, you know, if, one of them was a uh, uh, two cousins, and if if my if I had two cousins that I really cared about that died tragically, I don't know that I would go back to school. I don't know that I would want to. I, you know, and that would be just one part. You know, if I'm right. living in debilitating poverty, I don't know that I would want to go to school. I, and and you know, maybe if I was maybe if that was just one of the things that was difficult for me, maybe I would. But but if it's that, and then you know, I'm I'm struck my my family structure is set up in a way that makes it really difficult for us to maintain any semblance of normalcy. I'm living with a, I'm living in a property owned by a landlord that won't take care of it. So we don't have the necessities that we need to live a like safe and normal life. There's so many different layers that go into it that, um, you know, we get stuck on these like big numbers of statistics, certain percent does this certain percent does that. But what I'm learning is that when you dig into it a little bit and you start to really think about what, what are the effects of those statistics? And what has caused those statistics, it makes you just, I don't know, makes you just stop and think for a little while. Like, wow, I had it really easy. And the last thing I need to be doing to somebody that doesn't have it easy is judge them. And then yeah. like think think terribly of them. And, and that's, in my opinion, that's why a neighborhood like this still exists in, in, the, in the setup that it does is because it's so easy 
for me and, and I know for you, because we have these conversations, it's easy for us to judge somebody uh, that struggles to do the things that we find um, so easy. And um, it's not right. And it's a, and honestly, it's a sign of injustice because if, um, if, if it was a just world and if, if everything was fair and equitable, well, then there would be no predictability about who, who wins and who loses or who goes to Mad- who goes to UW Madison and who doesn't. You know, it would be um, it would it would still be based on merit, but everybody would have a fair shot at that, you know, that same level. And it, it, it's not how it is. So I don't know that it'll ever get to that point. But, you know, moving in that right direction um, is where we got to be going. And having a level of diversity within a space makes that a little bit more obtainable. It makes it a little bit more accessible. Um, yeah. to somebody. So, yeah, that's good. Y'all so good. We didn't even actually get to your like actual jobs, uh, oh, yeah. on, uh the podcast about work. So I, I'd say we did a pretty good job, you know, but I, I, <laughs> I think the way that you live your lives though, just encompasses like, like God's call on your life was to, you know, be in this place that you are and you've sort of worked your vocations and the, the things that you do around, you know, your community. And I think that's uh that's an important part of, of all of this too. So I appreciate you sharing. I wish I could like, I have so many things that I want to t- like gun control. I like so many things I want to oh, talk yeah. about, but um, I know we both have kids and mine are about to uh, lose their minds. So um, <laughs> go. <laughs> uh, are y'all okay? Jumping into just the final two questions real quick before we, uh, before we finish up here. Sure. Okay. So my first question is what is the strangest job that you have ever had? Okay. So when, um, you know, just, just like you, you know, we, you know, you work hard and you get results, you know, things pay off. So, um, back when my son was born, you know, we, we had kind of committed pretty seriously to getting out of debt, committed pretty seriously to like trying to save up to buy, so like purchasing rental properties without going into debt at all. So, once we paid off our house, we, we haven't been back into debt since then. Um, one of the things that we did to get out of debt was, um, so like when a Chinese restaurant has a menu and they want to offer online ordering, um, they go through this like company. It's like online, like Chinese online orders.com or that, that's what it was back like in 2013. So in back then, and for about two and a half years after that, um, I did about 20 to 25 of these a week. I would get emailed to me a picture of a Chinese menu for a Chinese restaurant. And I would enter in all of the names of and the prices of everything into like this, like online format thing. And then yeah. somebody would do some like mild coding work and then it would spit out like uh, an online accessible menu. So I did that on nights and weekends and it's terrible to say this, but like, I was going stir crazy um, like the third day after my son was born and she had a C-section. So she was in the hospital for a while. So I actually left it and went to a coffee shop and was doing Chinese menus while, <laughs> while the baby was sleeping. Um, but so, yeah, so entering in Chinese menus on online, that was, that was probably the oddest one. And I, and I think for me, it was probably, I worked at Valvoline instant oil change and Ooh. I would, I would come home and I would have like grease, like literal grease in my hair. Um, and it was, it was, uh, it was, I, I think it was actually a, a fun experience, but it made me, it made me really learn a lot about, you know, just that that is, that is, um, you know, oil changing places are, are, you know, sometimes people's best options, um, yeah. you know, working there. And it just made me yeah. kind of realize that there's a, there's a bigger life here and not everyone goes to college and that's okay. And, uh, 
it's just yeah it's a it's a different place but it was uh it was cool so were you changing oil or like what aspect of the yeah i was um i was doing some of that but i was mainly like the salesperson trying to uh, upsell okay. on windshield oh, okay. sand <laughs> that kind of stuff so the antifreeze package exactly. uh, you were, you were, okay. okay i got it i got it cool that's that is random i love it okay so my final question then is what is one piece of advice you would give to somebody looking to bring god's kingdom more into their work i think something that we have we have learned is just to have empathy have a try to have a lens of empathy um if you don't have that um it's very easy to judge and i think that's something that we've i mean we've learned in the last 14 years that it's it's very easy to judge and it's hard to have that lens of empathy um but when you do that, you can just, you just have, have such a, 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 a richer, um, you know, a richer life and a richer, you know, relationships with people around you. Yeah. And then I would say once you've got that empathy, then you can make some real serious design decisions about how you're going to interact with somebody or how you're going to build something or create something or, um, or yeah, or how you're going to, how you're going to interact with your team members, um, but yeah, it all does start with empathy. It all starts with trying to put yourself in a person's position and um, seeking first to understand rather than whatever else you would naturally do, which for yeah. me is not is not that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Thanks, y'all. It was so good uh, meeting y'all and uh, just talking about this stuff. It's it's important. So thanks for making time for me. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, this was yeah. great. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us on. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Alex and Meg and just their story and just maybe expanding your view of what calling looks like, what that could look like even for you. Maybe it's not your job specifically. Maybe it's where you live. Maybe it's uh, other factors. And so, uh, yeah, I hope that just pushes your thinking a little bit. I do really encourage you, if you're wanting to think about these topics more, uh, check out the 53206 podcast. I have the link in the show notes there for you just so you uh, can check it out easily. It is good stuff. And they talk about important things on this podcast. And I just highly encourage you to check it out. Uh, Right now is a great time for you to go to the bottom of your iTunes app. You can leave a rating and review for me there uh, just to let people know about the podcast and that other people are listening. And I just appreciate knowing that you're listening and getting something out of it. So I really appreciate you doing that. And until next time, get out there and hustle.